Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Ben Craven and today I'm joined by our Chief Economist, Dr. Eric Crampton. Hello, Eric. Good afternoon. Eric, today you released the report Safer Arrivals and the Path to 2022 and it details recommendations for the type of COVID policies that New Zealand should be adopting. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So we've been watching COVID policy pretty closely. I'm sure that regular listeners to the podcast have heard me talk about COVID policy more than a few times. Similarly, uh, Insights readers for our newsletter will have caught some of our contributions there as well. We've been watching the policy situation progress as well as the data progress from the studies overseas, as well as how the, how the virus has been tracking and trying to get a handle on how policy should be adapting as the world keeps moving. It's a fun space to be working in because you get a report half drafted and then the government shifts policy, either ruling out some of the things that you thought were good ideas and still think are good ideas, or a week after that, deciding that that's what they're going to do all along. So you have to keep shifting from saying that the government should do something to congratulating them on actually having picked something up. So that's all all fun. But there's a lot of things that need to get done as this next stage progresses. So what do I mean by next stage? Right now, if I predict still existed, the wonderful little prediction market that uh, Simon Bridges killed when he was Minister of Justice. But anyways, we won't get into that. But if there were a contract paying out a dollar, if there were COVID in Wellington in the next fortnight, I'd be buying that contract at 40 cents and I'd be selling that contract at 85 cents. That'd be my current guess as to the likelihood of it showing up here soon. It's not contained. They're trying to maintain suppression, uh, but they've given up on elimination. COVID's going to be coming through and policy is not quite ready to deal with it. And you can see this somewhat in the government's scrambling announcements. Uh, yesterday and then today, they were starting to talk more about testing, especially today, the new testing methods that they're potentially bringing in. We talked about a lot of this in the report. It's stuff that has to get considered. The government has been ruling it out for a very long time or dealing with it kind of boneheadedly. And that has to get it has to get sorted because when you've got a lot of COVID in the community, you need to have very different testing regimes than we've been relying on so far. So the report has a series of recommendations trying to take into account this new reality that there's COVID around. We need to prevent it from being rampant while we're still getting vaccination rates up and while we still have kids who are not able to be vaccinated because they're too young, our ICUs aren't ready for it. Whatever you think about the modeling work that gets trotted out by the government in their 1 p.m. sessions on the rates of vaccination that are needed to avoid having catastrophic outcomes in the hospitals, like all of these models tend to get you to 90% population vaccination rates are needed to avoid bad things. You can just look out the window. So if you look out the window, and I keep looking out the window to back home in Canada, in Alberta, the premier there at the start of the summer, well, we've been talking about a classic Kiwi summer. He wanted to have a summer of freedom in Alberta because vaccination had started picking up. So they removed all their restrictions. They removed them at a point where vaccination rates were lower than we're at now, but not a lot lower than we're at now. And they are currently now at uh, 72% of the population with uh, at least first doses. Now, that's nowhere near enough. They have numbers of people in their intensive care units just with COVID that exceed New Zealand's ICU capacity. Okay, so that's not good. We can't have that happen here. They've, they've gotten into a spot where 
you can't get normal access to the health system because unvaccinated people are clogging up all of the ICU spaces. So while about 20% of the over 12 population, or sorry, less than 20% of the over 12 population there is completely unvaccinated, so they distinguish between unvaccinated first dose and fully, it was less than 20% were completely unvaccinated for those over 12. More than 80% of those in ICU are unvaccinated. All right, so they're right. massively overrepresented. So again, whatever your beliefs on the studies and stuff like that, all you have to do is look out the window. Alberta puts all up all of their data on who's in ICU, who's in hospital, by age, whether they had a pre-existing condition or not, and you can very, very clearly see the effects of vaccination on reducing the burden in the healthcare system. So just completely lifting restrictions would be a bad idea at our levels of vaccination. We need to have other measures. So we go through a few of these and can split them into categories. The first one is just enhancing vaccination rates, doing everything we can to try and push that out and enabling businesses to make the decisions that are safe for them, their workers and their customers. So right now there's a lot of legal uncertainty around setting employer mandates for vaccination for staff. It's clearly legal in some areas where it has been explicitly allowed by public health order or actually required by public health order. It is very, very likely legal and defensible in cases where there is direct risk because there's a lot of COVID around. But you do have this catch-22 that we've talked about before in columns and in the podcast where if COVID isn't prevalent yet, then you might not be able to require it of workers as a health and safety measure because you can't show that there's a clear and present health and safety risk. But by the time there is that community transmission, it's too late to set a mandate because it takes eight weeks for you to be fully vaccinated, right? You get your first dose, you wait six weeks, you get your second dose, then two weeks later, you're fully, fully protected. Well, that's two months too late. You want to set it well in advance of COVID getting, getting to your place. So hopefully everybody out there has already gotten their second dose. I brought forward my second dose because I'm, well, I was thinking about those odds and went and did that today. Making it easier for employers to require vaccination when they see it as being necessary is important. Vaccination mandates like this have worked abroad. In North America, they don't lead to piles of people turning up unemployed or quitting their jobs. They lead to piles of people getting vaccinated. So that's important. We also need to have DHBs learning from each other. There have been some spectacular successes out there, just innovative ways of trying to get out to communities that have been hesitant. And you saw some of this early on. So when there were requirements for port workers to get tested and vaccinated, it took a lot of conversations in some places because a lot of misinformation had gotten out among port workers and some places figured it out. We need to be able to learn from each other's successes in reaching out to communities that need it and getting vaccination through. So the government has been right to emphasize this. We need more of it. We support the government in all of that. Has but there been some sort of um, siloed mentality with DHBs? There hasn't been quite enough highlighting of the successes and then enabling everybody to learn from each other of what works. And vaccination targets can even help, right? So if you remember previously, we under the prior national government, we did have targets around like measles vaccination and childhood immunization rates, and they would be reporting all of these. And then DHBs that were kind of lagging would get told to get their childhood immunization rates up. The pushes around the targets kind of fell by the wayside with the shift in government where they didn't really like to have targets for DHBs. Um, they're probably going to be needed here and especially in as a success measure, right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Also in, in the report, there's a lot of other recommendations that aren't testing related. Um, one, of the, one of them that comes to mind is carbon dioxide filters in, uh, or, or monitors rather, in classrooms. Are these other measures required because we have such a low vaccination rate or are they needed in addition? So we've got a few sections on the report. First bit we go through vaccination, then we get into COVID testing and other restrictions that could be put in place. But we do have a section around improving ventilation in the schools and what we can do to help protect those communities. Because right now I am forbidden by the government to get my 11-year-old vaccinated. The government bans me from doing that because it's not not safe approved yet, right? So like you, everybody knows that approval is coming, but I am still prohibited by the state from protecting my daughter. The best protection that kids can have in the classrooms is that all of their teachers be vaccinated. It's the adults that are a much greater transmission risk. There's studies that come out showing just like they show the maps of the classrooms and you have the teacher at the front and then, well, here's the front row and everybody in the class got in the front row got infected and 80% of the people in the second row got infected, but fewer people in the third row and like nobody at the back. You can see this happen in the maps of the classrooms. Classroom ventilation matters. And we've known this for ages, right? So if I remember back to last March, April, I was in just like discussion groups on this stuff and the importance of ventilation in preventing transmission of airborne diseases is not unknown, right? Opening windows matters. Now, carbon dioxide monitors are dead cheap. I bought one on AliExpress for 20 bucks delivered to my house. Wow. Um, you push a button on it and it tells you what your CO2 levels are. Now, nobody cares about CO2 for COVID, but if you're in a room with a lot of people and your CO2 levels go from like a green indicator on your monitor to a red indicator, because you got a lot of people in there with a lot of exhaust coming out of them, it's telling you that you got an air circulation problem, which can be a signal of that you should be doing something about air circulation. Now, there have been places that have rolled out some of these uh, CO2 monitors to schools. Uh, the UK has done it recently, get these into the classrooms. If the uh, CO2 levels go up, open windows, open doors, increase ventilation, do something to increase airflow to help protect students so that there's less risk of transmission that way. There's little things like that. But there's also neat stuff that we could have been doing all the way through and just haven't been because the government just doesn't think this way. This comes through in a few of the sections of the report. We have lost so many opportunities in MIQ for better figuring out what can work. Now, I guess we're, we're always in one of these, the best time to have planted an oak tree is 20 years ago, but the second best time is today. Mm. Okay, well, same thing with this. UV filtration of air, other air filtration mechanisms have been shown to be pretty effective in reducing viral load in airborne samples. So there was a trial in a hospital where they had it in an ICU. They were trying to reduce the amount of COVID that was just in the air so that people wouldn't be picking it up. And once they turned on the filtration unit, so like they ran it for a while with just the fan going and without the filter, without sterilization going on to clear the air, check how much COVID shows up in the filter, put in new filters. Okay, now let's turn on the sterilization, run it through, see how much COVID st still winds up being in the air. They knocked it down to nothing. So wow. why haven't we been trying some of these kinds of things in MIQ just to see what works, right? We've got an isolation facility at Jet Park. They could be trying different ways of 
sterilizing the air, making it safer, and then see what works. Roll it out in the hospitals if it does prove effective, potentially also in the schools. But if it doesn't, then you'd know because you'd tested it in a place where there's already a lot of COVID. Similarly with testing. Right now, the government is scrambling to figure out how to integrate rapid antigen tests into our overall testing regime. Since April 2020, they have, the government has banned rapid antigen tests except for this one small trial at, at one of the Auckland hospitals. I think it was Middlemore, but I'll have to check. What's, it might. What's the rationale for that? Um, at the time, it wasn't crazy. It at least was defensible. So rapid antigen tests are not as accurate as PCR tests. And because they're just something that you do at home rather than through an authorized supplier who will record what the result is and then get you into the COVID tracing system, the government has been terrified that if people have these things at home, they'll use them and either get a false negative and then think that they don't have COVID and go and spread it to everybody, which isn't crazy because the tests aren't 100% accurate, or get COVID know they have COVID and be scared to report it to anybody because they know they'll be shuffled off to an MIQ isolation facility and they desperately want to avoid that. So fear of both of those has meant that the government has wanted to prohibit these. Neither of those worries are crazy. But once you shift into a phase where there is a lot more community transmission, things change and testing should be thought about as a symptom or as a system, right? So if you're at an essential workplace, and this is one of our recommendations, if you're at an essential workplace that's only able to, uh, we're, we're talking about essential workplaces, level three, Auckland, right? If you're operating under level three and you've only been able to manage to get weekly testing of your workforce through PCR testing, well, two days later, you could be infected and infectious, right? So Delta comes in quickly, a lot faster than COVID classic. So you've got your negative PCR test, you've been cleared, and then you spend five days that's infectious before your next darn PCR test. What if we had every employer working under level three or level four requirements given just a sackful of rapid antigen tests and told to add them to their existing PCR testing regime for daily testing of workers? Because daily testing is different than a one-off. A test that is not 100% accurate if you use it once it's going to have fewer false negatives if you use it in repeated succession. You use it over and over and over again, the chances of getting repeated false negatives are lower, and you're going to be catching cases that otherwise would not have been caught. The government has been making the best of the enemy of the good throughout all of this, and not being sensitive to the shifts in use case. So they're, they're scrambling now to figure out how to integrate this, had they been thinking about this all a little bit more clearly, and this isn't just hindsight, this is stuff we've talked about for some time and getting better testing into MIQ for getting data collection, this is why you do it. It, it would have been simple. We've had tens of thousands of people going through MIQ and they've got a known testing system through the PCR swab tests, okay? Add in daily saliva-based PCR testing, have RACO run it, run it through their systems, just to check so that the government could confirm to itself that the PCR saliva testing that RACO offers is at least as accurate as the swab tests, right? It's easy, you add it in, you just watch everybody, see when they show up as positive on each test, see what works. But at the same time, you could ask everybody in MIQ to take a daily rapid antigen test. Pick a half dozen of them that look the most promising, right? Roll them out, see which ones catch things fastest 
in actual use cases. They're not under medical supervision or anything. You just give them the packs, tell them in your hotel room, in MIQ, in the privacy of your own room, run the test and tell us if it comes up positive. And by the way, keep doing it after we put you in isolation when we already know you have COVID because we know the PCR tests are going to catch things faster than rapid antigen tests. And we want to know when this test catches it, right? This is totally doable. We could know right now which tests are most effective and when they, when they present as positive and negative in actual use cases in New Zealand. Throughout the report, I try to keep a from where we are perspective, leaving aside the failures of the past. Um, it, and I should do that again here. From where we are, I hope that we could add this in to MIQ so that whatever, however we roll out rapid tests, we could inform changes in practice through a little bit better information. Right, so one of the big criticisms of, of, of the COVID restrictions at the moment has been that it's empowered these public health experts. A lot of people are worried that um, these empowered experts will feel encouraged to introduce more restrictions on other aspects of our lives, um, whether it's alcohol or vaping, any, anything like that. What are your thoughts on this? Not crazy to worry about, very, very worth worrying about but we need to sharply distinguish the rationale around measures stopping infectious disease and measures trying to limit lifestyle disorders and non-communicable disease. And we go through some of that in the paper and it informs some of our recommendations as well. So if we step back a little bit just on an economic foundation of why we should view restrictions around transmission of infectious disease very differently from fat taxes, soda taxes, restrictions against smoking in your own car, all that kind of stuff. Because all of those other bits offend me, right? Uh, I've been railing against this stuff for like two decades, okay? So uh, from the time I've been in New Zealand, this stuff has been annoying me and I've been writing on it for at least a decade. So I don't think that I have to establish my anti-nanny state creds. I, I'm usually the, the biggest critic of this stuff. But there's a sharp difference here. All of those measures that we object to and will often push back against are measures that are intended to protect you from yourself. And we generally believe that people are best placed to make decisions for themselves over things that only affect them, right? The problem that you get into in infectious disease is that obviously it infects other people. Affects other people, infects other people. I misspoke, but they're, they're in the same direction here. So one way of thinking about it is that there's a sharp difference between proposals around alcohol that would limit opening hours for bars and stop you from buying as much alcohol as you might like or try and increase the price of it or put in minimum price restrictions and all of that stuff to protect you from the consequences of drinking too much. That's very different from restrictions on driving while you were severely intoxicated. When you are driving, when you're in severely intoxicated, it doesn't matter that I choose to drive while sober. It doesn't matter that I've chosen the safest possible car to drive with like 50 billion airbags in it. I can't protect myself enough against the risk that's imposed by someone who's very, very risky when they're out on the roads. So those are very different rationales. We can argue about what the right drink drive limit is, but it's certainly not like 0.2 on the, on the old measures, right? So 0 0.08, 0 0.05, arguable, debatable. 0.2, no, that's just crazy. They're an insane risk to everybody else on the roads. They're categorically different 
from the kinds of restrictions on opening hours or what, what you might be able to, to purchase because of that external cost on others. Now, some of what comes in under COVID regulation sounds an awful lot like the rationale for some of the measures around alcohol, but they wind up being fundamentally different in a different way. So one argument that I have very regularly argued against when it comes to alcohol and smoking and other stuff is that these behaviors impose a cost on the public through the public health system. They increase, they force the Ministry of Health to spend more money. Therefore, uh, it should be taxed or regulated to reduce that cost to the public health system. Now, there are a lot of problems with that argument. The first and most substantial one is that for an economist, this is largely a transfer rather than real increase in cost. So the existence of the public health system means that the taxpayers bear the cost of something. It doesn't really change the quantum of the cost unless you think that people are going to smoke just a ton more because they know that the public health system will take care of it for them, or they're going to let their liver explode because they know that the public health system will take care of it them, um, if something bad happens. Those margins are not all that elastic, right? There might be some minor argument for it to the extent that it affects behavior, but not winding up a, in, a, in a horrible health state is pretty sufficient incentive for people to be weighing that up already. The extra bit of the cost transfer is largely inframarginal. Now, this is argued through in a very nice piece in Public Finance Review by Browning, 1999, who winds up showing that if you take that argument seriously, the set of taxes and subsidies that you'd have to impose to try and internalize all of those costs that run through the public health system, well, you've just gone and replicated the premium that, in, that a private insurance provider would have provided, except at massive transaction cost. So if that's what you really want to do, honestly, you'd want to just get rid of the public health system and give everybody a voucher to purchase private health insurance, if that is what you want to do. I'm not saying that's what we should do, but if that's the line of argument, that's where it should be going. Now, with COVID, it's fundamentally different because where if I lead a very unhealthy lifestyle, my expected healthcare costs are higher, well, the whole healthcare system has kind of geared up for this steady state, right? It, you might think that it's inadequate, but it's responsive in that, in that sense that the amount of funding that the health system gets depends on kind of steady state demand for it. COVID is something categorically different. It would be impossible to properly internalize all of this. So the surge cost through ICUs is tremendous. Again, if you look at Alberta, they have more people in ICU only with COVID, if you look at it per capita, than we have ICU units per capita for the whole country, for everything. Okay, so that means you would have to at least double the size of the whole health system, barring those things that are uh, not at all related to COVID, to be able to deal with this. Because ICU is the tip of an iceberg, right? You've got all of the regular hospital beds that feed into ICU once cases get bad enough. So that, if, if you basically need a whole parallel health structure to deal with the burden of COVID that's as big as everything that you've already got, it is impossible for government to gear that up in any kind of a hurry. So that means that it isn't just a fiscal cost that's then imposed. It means that there is a severe crowding out of every normal health service as consequence. 
this isn't just a, well, you decide to eat a, an unhealthy, have an unhealthy lifestyle, eat too many steaks, and the taxpayer has to pay for your heart attack down the track. Actually, it's not going to be steak that does it because steaks are awesome. And anyways, we'll ignore paleo stuff, but um, it isn't that. It's that you other people being wind up being directly affected because they are unable to access medical services at any price because the whole thing has been swamped. Avoiding that is really, really important and categorically different from policies around putting a 50 cent tax on soda or whatever because public health people worry about that. Now, how this winds up being reflected in our recommendations, well, we do have a lot of recommendations on trying to reduce the potential burden in ICU. And one of them is getting the bloody lead out on approving therapeutics that could help keep people out of hospital and ICU that are in use abroad and are proving effective and that are nowhere yet on our radar, or just starting to be on the radar. We talked about this with Graham Jarvis from Medicines New Zealand a few weeks ago, where unless there is signaled procurement intent on the part of the government, people aren't going to, other companies aren't going to be getting their drugs into the approval process here because you're paying an arm and a leg to get it assessed and dealing with all the paperwork hassle and you don't even know whether the government's interested in buying them. Like you can always set a procurement contract that says we'll buy this only if it passes MedSafe approval and then the company can say, oh, good. Well, actually you're wanting to buy enough of it that it's actually worth the hassle to go through MedSafe. So we'll go ahead and do that. Unless they get that moving, we are going to be at the back of procurement queues at times when we desperately need to not be at the back of procurement queues. So that needs to get moving. But we also recommend that any public health agency that gets established around this stuff be a little more focused. The government is undergoing a lot of review of the, of the health system overall. They're restructuring everything. They're rethinking how DHBs might be structured and all of that stuff. Part of the mix is the potential establishment of a public health agency as a crown agency, which would have sort of encompassing remit over communicable and non-communicable disease. I worry greatly that the same forgetting of infectious disease that happened over the past two decades in public health in New Zealand will happen again in any such agency when the threat of COVID has passed, people kind of forget about infectious disease and everybody goes back to, well, let's ban soda and let's ban all these other things that people enjoy that don't infect others, right? Like Coca-Cola has never caused our borders to close. Um, <laughs> so we're suggesting strongly that there be, look, whatever they want to do in non-communicable disease, leave that to the side, have a separate infectious diseases agency with one job, just watching over infectious disease. It could follow the Taiwanese example of being invoked in a public health emergency like COVID to be able to do the kinds of things that Taiwan did faster than we did. We suggest that its governance should include some people with commercial experience. One of the big problems we've had over the past 18 months is that particularly the Ministry of Health has been stonewalling any discussion with industry on how to make things work. And that matters when you're regulating folks who have to be able to operate under those sets of rules. So you just get too many stories of companies being blindsided by new work rules that wind up being impracticable, that just can't work because nobody consulted them ahead of time. Now, I know the ministry is always burdened and they're scrambling a bit. A bit of chat ahead of time with industry just to see if something can work wouldn't be amiss having some commercial experience and expertise on the governance board of an infectious diseases agency could help. We also suggest that when public health restrictions are in place, that that agency have to report to an epidemic response committee of parliament 
chaired by a member of the opposition. So if we think back a year, the Epidemic Response Committee worked very well in getting effective scrutiny of what the government is all up to. After that ended, and before Auckland's new lockdown started, we saw a shift in select committee process where partisanship on the part of some of the Labour Party members in the Health Select Committee blocked effective parliamentary oversight. So it is impossible to get proper scrutiny of what DG Health and the Ministry of Health was up to until we got into the Auckland lockdown again and then they were told to smarten up and not stonewall quite the same way. But by then it was too late, right? All of the scrutiny that might have stopped Auckland from happening was prevented by these a dysfunctional select committee process. Having constant reporting from that agency to an epidemic response committee chaired by the opposition, and it doesn't matter which party's in par parliament, chaired by the opposition would help. Right, today the government announced that there were cases outside the level three boundaries, so outside Auckland and Waikato. Uh, it looks pretty clear that COVID is uh, in, in the level two communities. Of your policies in this paper, what, what's ready to grab and go now? Uh, what what should the government be doing immediately to reduce those number of cases? Okay, it's, it's tough because you don't always know what's already in progress. And we've got those caveats throughout the paper, right? One of the, the, the parallel bit to Ministry of Health won't talk to anybody is that nobody knows what the hell Ministry of Health is doing. So it could be that some of this is already in progress. And unless you're watching all of the 1 p.m. briefings religiously, and remembering all of it and then following up to make sure that it actually gets done. Like it's, it's just too hard to tell what's going on. So hopefully some of this is already in progress. I would desperately hope that vaccination vans are showing up at every Auckland school as soon as Auckland schools reopen for vaccinating every everyone who's eligible to be vaccinated. So ages 12 and up, the default should be that they're all vaccinated at school, invited to bring their families along with to be vaccinated if they haven't been vaccinated already, with a priority on communities that have had lower vaccination rates. Get it out to where people already are. Now, there's already been some really important, fantastic work that's been under, been going on in this. We've seen Pacifica festivals on vaccination. We've seen lots of great stuff. Make darn sure that the vaccinations happen at schools. Okay, so get it start at Auckland, but get it out more broadly. So um, vaccination at school becomes a regular part of the process and then have that ready to roll out when MedSafe gives approval for younger cohorts. That might come as early as the end of the month. We're not quite sure. Having it ready to, ready to go immediately would really help because what you can get is COVID rampant among our unvaccinated communities, right? And kids, while they're far less likely to suffer really severe adverse consequence, um, from COVID, they're just more naturally resilient to it. There, there still can be some pretty serious consequences. There's lots of kids in Alberta that still wound up in, in hospital and then in ICU. But the bigger worry is going to be them bringing it home to the grandparents if they're in multi-generational households and elderly people are less protected. Like they're still really protected by the vaccine, but they're still at a lot of risk of catching it and getting bad outcomes. So getting vaccine rolled out would be really great. The government has signaled that they're looking at changing up the uh, COVID testing regime. That'll be important, making sure they do it right. Rolling out saliva-based testing as appropriate, making sure that that can be a backbone, especially for widespread community surveillance. So the Ministry of Health has had a few odd statements on this. There was a Ministry of Health spokesman last week who'd suggested that saliva-based collection wasn't appropriate for surveillance testing. That 
really jars when you have any understanding of what's going on anywhere else in the world, where in Illinois, for example, they're using the University of Illinois' SHIELD protocol for surveillance testing. In half of the schools in the state, testing hundreds of thousands of kids all the time, just weekly, for surveillance. So it's being used there for surveillance, and that's the same test protocol that RACO's using. And then the ministry says that they don't want to use saliva for surveillance. I, I, I wonder what's going on at the Ministry of Health. And uh, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it there on the ministry. Um, getting better testing through and a lot more of it would be great. Stepping up the uh, sewage surveillance testing would also be important to know where, where to start being worried about it. All of those are going to matter. The government should be working more closely with the companies that have to interface with the Auckland border on how to deal with appropriate safety and logistics in getting people through the Auckland border. Trucks have to go through it all the time. Regular testing there is in place, but how hard would it be to give every truckie who's crossing the border a bag of rapid antigen tests to take with them while they're on the road? So they've passed their negative uh, PCR test within 48 hours of leaving, but they could have been early in infection or caught it since. If they had daily, if they tested themselves daily while they were out on the road, positive cases that would not otherwise have been caught could be caught and then reported in and people could self-isolate, get it into the system, right? That should be being done. We could also be thinking about where the Auckland boundary might get moved to as Hamilton and other places seem to be having outbreaks. The data analyst um, had put, to get, put it together a map showing, well, if you wanted to really extend the boundary out, recognizing that you just can't isolate Hamilton by road because there's too many roads in and out. Well, there's a, a ring that you can draw around the, the central north, north of the North Island. Points at seven roads would be a barrier. So all you'd need to do is be checking those seven roads, and then you'd be stopping spread down to the lower part of the North Island, and hope, potentially also then by the ferry across to the South Island. If the government were looking at expanding that boundary, recognizing that COVID has already gotten out from Auckland, that would be one thing to look at. Also important is emphasizing how vaccine passports are going to work into the overall system. So yesterday, the Prime Minister signaled that they were coming, that they're going to be required for major events, but that they weren't really being worked into the alert system. They were thinking about this parallel system. Another way of thinking about it would be to maintain the current alert system, but with different gradations. So right now, I'm in Wellington, we're operating under level two. Uh, venues can't have more than 100 people in them. And right now you don't know who's vaccinated and who's not. Surely if it's safe to operate at 100 people where you've got no clue whether they're vaccinated or not, some higher number would be appropriate if you could ensure that everyone in the facility were vaccinated. You could have sort of this two-part alert system where if you're operating under level two, these are the restrictions that apply. But if you can guarantee that nobody in your venue, staff, or people who are coming through are unvaccinated, then a much more liberal set of rules apply because it is actually safer. That would provide encouragement to get vaccinated, would improve safety within places and enable them to have more normal operation. It would make clear that it's legal for employers to require this for their staff. That's currently legally uncertain. The government has to get that clarified very quickly to show that you can do this, as well as requiring it for entry onto premises, working it into the alert system and then leaving the choice up to venues. 
Okay, it's up to you. Your university? Well, if we have to invoke level three again, you're not going to be able to have in-person lectures. But if you can guarantee that everybody on site is fully vaccinated, well, here's the set of rules that are going to apply and they'll look more like level two. Or if you're operating at level two and you're a university and you've decided to, to require that everyone's vaccinated, well, your lecture theaters can be full again. Those kinds of workings in so that facilities can choose what works for them but under a public health regime that ensures safety where, well, one set of things are safe when, it, when you can't guarantee that everybody's vaccinated, but another thing, set of things are safe when everyone's vaccinated, that can work. Fantastic. Dr. Eric Crampton, thanks so much for joining us. That's great food for thought, and I encourage all listeners to check out our website and read your report. Thanks again. Thank you. To stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.